You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreau Boswell. Be sure to stay tuned throughout this episode because we are going to give you guys instructions on how to enter to win an Arrow Hunter saddle. We're going to give away either a kite or a Kestrel. Basically, it's going to be the winner's choice, uh, whatever size they want, whatever style they want. It's going to be a full saddle kit uh, with all the accessories. So stay tuned. We'll have information on how exactly you can enter to win that. It is now officially August, uh, which means the season, at least in my state, is right around the corner. A uh, little over a month until the season officially opens. And I imagine for you, Bobby, that uh, mule deer season is going to open up probably in the next few weeks, I would imagine. Uh, 11 days, I believe. 11 oh, or 12 wow. days. That's right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's not even around the corner. It's on the home stretch now. Yeah, so basically, I just wanted to get your thoughts, and then I'll kind of tell the listeners what I'm doing right now to really help prepare for the season, and not only that, but what kind of the plans are for the season, what we're going to be hunting when, and what the plans are, and what things we kind of have to wait on to see how they could affect what we're going to do later on in the season, and all that good stuff. So, I want to start with you first. So, you you drew this mule deer tag. Was it the, the Wasatch Front, or was it a different unit? I can't remember. This is the Ochre Stansbury unit, um, so it's just west of Salt Lake City. It's actually, I live in a town called Tooele, um, so it's the two mountain ranges east and west of me. Um, this is where I hunted in 2008 when I killed my 150-inch 4x4 mule deer. When you say 4x4, did that include brow tines, no brow tines? Just, it didn't have brow tines. So just forks on one side, forks on the other? Yep. Gotcha. So... When you shot that 150 in 2008, did you see a lot of other big bucks or was that, I mean, is it kind of open terrain? Describe kind of what that, what that area is like. 
Yeah, so it's relatively open. Um, I mean, it's kind of high sagebrush. You can kind of drop down a little bit lower and get into some of the pines and aspens where the deer will go to bed when it gets hotter. Um, so it's relatively open. When I shot that deer, um, there was actually a group of five bucks with it. Um, and looking back on it, I shot I shot the biggest four by four of the group. But that being said, there was a giant four by one. So he had a really big four point frame on one side, but then he had a giant like elk spike on the other side. <laughs> and I kind of regret not shooting that deer now. Um, but yeah, there's there's quite a few big deer up there. Um, so season opens on the 18th, I believe. Uh, my plan is. I'm going to pack up with a buddy on the 17th and we've got a pretty good sized deer scouted out up there. Um, and he's got some history with this deer. So I have a work conference the first week of season. So from the 20th to the 21st, I'll actually be in Baltimore. Hmm. So I won't get to hunt that week. So I'm only going to be up there the first weekend. So my plan is to pack up with him the first weekend. And I'm actually going to take the recurve up that weekend and hunt with it. Uh, mostly I'm going to try to help him get on this deer and get this deer killed. Um, he's been up to this deer for three years now. So that's my plan going up. I'll be back the second week of season in which I plan to go back up the mountain and probably spend five days up on the mountain. Um, so that'll be about just before September 1st. I'll be up there and then come September 1st, through Labor Day weekend, I guess my plan is to transition to elk. Even if I haven't killed the deer at that point, I'm going to try to transition to some water holes, maybe take my kite or my kestrel and go sit on some water holes and see if I can shoot an elk from a kestrel or a kite uh, with a recurve. So when you go up with your buddy who's <clears throat> got history and has scouted this one particular buck, how, how would you plan on... I mean, how's it going to work if, say, you guys get on that deer? I mean, is he basically going to get first dibs at going after it? Spot he's stock, got I'm dibs. assuming. Okay. Yeah, he's got only dibs. I'm not going to go after this deer. Um, it's last year he had this deer, I think, under 60 yards three times and couldn't kill it. One time he had it as close as seven yards um, and didn't realize the deer was there um, until he, you know, got busted by another deer and they all blew out. So, um, I mean, it's probably a 190-inch deer. It's really wide. Um, got a couple kickers off the frame. It's a pretty good-sized deer that he's been after, like I said, for three years. So it's that's the reason I'm taking the recurve is I'm strictly going to help him those first two days. Um, so I'm not necessarily going to kill something the first two days. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm particularly just taking the recurve is my, lane, my range is going to be drastically limited. That being said, if a little two-point or four-point walks by under 30, I'll probably shoot it. Okay, so you're not really imposing any kind of limits or goals on deer size. You're more about you want to get the job done with a recurve, or is that kind of yeah, the... So that, that first weekend, because I'm leaving on Monday for business trip, yeah. I wanna I don't want to have to kill a deer like on Sunday night or Sunday afternoon and have to take care of that deer before Monday morning, get it packed down, get camp packed down and all that stuff. So I'm purposefully taking the recurve to limit myself and restrict myself. Okay. What's so, and then after after the second week or the after a September first time frame, um, I'm gonna kind of bounce back and forth from deer to elk if I haven't killed anything by then. 
um, on the Wasatch front. Will you still be using? Yeah, you said you still be using a recurve when you go after elk, but I'm assuming probably deer the same. Are you, are uh, deer, you? I'll probably take my compound. Um, okay, so I may I'm, take my compound a little bit. Um, some of the areas are you can run into deer and elk. Um, so depending on when I go and how long I go for, um, will kind of depend on what I take. And if you are hunting with the compound, are you, you going to hold off for a little bit bigger deer or kind of the same either way? I'm non-discriminate. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the interesting thing about the Wasatch front. Um, you can actually harvest a doe on the Wasatch front, whereas in the other units that you draw a tag for, um, you have to harvest an antler deer. So basically what happens if you don't harvest a deer with your tag in the unit you drew, so archery season is from the 18th of August through like mid-September. Um, so if I don't harvest a deer in that unit, I can take that deer tag and hunt the Wasatch Front extended archery with that deer tag and use it on either sex deer at that point. Um, so that's kind of my plan is if I don't kill a deer, I've got that deer tag I can transition to the Wasatch Front with. And the Wasatch Front is a lot heavier hunted? Yes, it's a lot more pressured. Okay. So kind of that first month or so, roughly, that's kind of like your your chance of getting a little bit better hunt, lower pressure, probably bigger deer, less pressured deer. And then after that, it's kind of you, you take whatever you get. Yeah, pretty much. The first weekend, uh, there'll probably be a fair number of people up there. It'll be, I'm not going to say heavily pressured, but there'll be some hunters up there and it'll be a little bit pressured. But typically after the first, you know, six or eight days, um, it tapers off a lot. So the second and maybe even the third weekend, there's very few people up there. What's the elevation like up there? Um, it's only 8,500 to, you know, depending on where you're at, you know, you can get in the Stansberries and get up high, um, you know, 10,000, 11,000 feet maybe. Um, but most of it's 85 to probably 95 and at the higher levels of those peaks or those mountains, is it pretty much, I mean, can you get above Timberline in those areas or is it basically just, you got the, the evergreens and aspens and then you got the, the sagebrush was lower or this, was that higher? There's not a whole lot of trees higher up in there. So you can get what you would, I guess you could consider above tree line um, where you're basically up in the, you know, the low Aspen or the low Sage, um, you know, and then drop down a little bit to get into some timber. Um, uh, but you're not tr technically truly above tree line. Cause that's like 10, five or somewhere right in there is technically what tree line is, but you're hunting above the trees for the most part. So in that Sage, does that pretty much go up to the, the peaks or yeah. is there an area then where it's just all barren? Yeah, some, some peaks you can get into, especially in the Stansberries where it gets all barren, um, but most of kind of the area that I'm hunting in, uh, the sage and uh, snowberry can go go up pretty much to the peaks. Okay. Interesting. Is that all spot and stock for the most part that you're planning? Yeah, for that area, it's all spot and stock. Um, like I said, as I transition to the Wasatch Front, I may do more saddle hunting over water holes. Um, or wallows for elk specifically. And like I said, I've got a mule deer tag. So if a mule deer walks in, I'm not going to hesitate. Okay. And then I think 
come November time frame, I'm planning a trip back to Missouri. Um, you know, I always go back there around Thanksgiving time frame, depending on how firearm season lands there. I'll be heading back there. Um, and hopefully you can join for this trip. Um, and we're going to do some whitetail hunting there kind of on the family farm and some public land around that area. Yeah, that would definitely be fun. Remind me what the timing of that firearm season is. Uh, I think it's the second Saturday in November, and that runs for nine days, I think. So it'll be like the 10th through the 20th will be my guess, and that's their firearm season. Okay. Yeah, for me, um, the season will start off, I'm pretty sure, opening weekend, I'll hunt Wisconsin. Uh, but then after that, so like the second week of the season, I'm going to take a few days off of work and go down and, and hunt a, a different place in Minnesota that I'd never hunted before. It's a whole big chunk of public land. Um, and so the plan there, I guess, is, you know, see what happens, do some scouting, hopefully first. I've done a whole ton of online scouting for it. It's going to be kind of hilly terrain, which historically for me is not as high percentage in early season. I feel a lot more comfortable in marshes early season just because it seems like I can get a lot closer and it's a little bit easier to predict the bedding and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've done all right on like does and smaller buck sightings in hill country, but it seems like the bigger stuff, I have a lot more experience in marshes. So that'd be interesting. I kind of want to take that as a good opportunity to learn. And then if I do happen to punch my tag on a buck, then essentially my Minnesota season is going to be almost done, right? Cause Minnesota is a one buck state. So even if I shoot a deer or a buck with my bow in archery season in September, I can't buy a firearm season and shoot a second buck in November. So if I do punch that tag, then my season is going to shift to pretty much primarily hunting Wisconsin at that point with the exception of the fact that I also have a Metro hunt that I have a couple preference points for and will most likely easily draw. But the thing is, I can't wait until I see what happens in September to see if I punch that buck tag. I got to have those points in and I got to have the application going through prior to the season starting. So again, if I punch that buck tag in Southern Minnesota, then what that means is the Metro hunt is going to be doe only. And if I do decide to buy a shotgun tag, that would also be doe only. And then I would pretty much just be driving, uh, over to Minnesota or Wisconsin for every other hunt. So with that said, it's, is it safe to say you're probably going to be a little pickier on your, your bucks that you try to hunt or try to shoot, um, during that time frame? Yeah, probably for a couple of reasons, because number one, that area of the state is the only area of the state where it's it has been antler point restriction for a couple of years now. So there's probably a better likelihood that there's more older deer running around than there is like in the area around where I live, uh, just percentage wise. So even though that might be a little bit harder to hunt and harder to pick out, uh, with the very, you know, the thermals and, and how they use the wind and that kind of terrain. Um, and also the fact that you can't really distance yourself as easily from small game hunters like you can in wet country. I probably will hold off for a little bit larger deer. I'm not sure yet if I'm going to bring the compound or the, um, the trad bow. 
Um, I'll probably hunt mostly with a trad bow for most of the season, except for the Metro hunt. And I'm undecided yet on that September hunt. Cause if I do see a giant, you know, that's bigger than anything I've shot before, I want to probably at least have the opportunity to take it at, you know, 30 yards or whatever. So I probably, I might bring the, the compound, but we'll see. Maybe I'll bring down both and decide once I'm there. So with the Metro hunter, you're required to take a proficiency test, um, that you have to pass in order to be able to hunt it. Yeah. Yeah. They'd make you take like a five arrow and like, a, I think a five inch diameter circle. And then if you want to do a sharpshooter specific hunt, then you got to get them in like a four or a three inch circle. And if you don't pass the first day, you can take it again the next day and you can just keep taking it day after day, one attempt until you pass. So <laughs> it's, it's not really that hard to pass it on the compound. I could probably pass it on the trad bow, hopefully on the first day, but I could probably pass it on the second day. I would bet. Um, just, is that 20 just, yards? I'm guessing Yeah, 20 yards. Okay. Um, so like on my good days, I'm easily passing that with a trad bow, but I have days where, you know, you're just not shooting good that everybody I, has. I, so I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pass that five inch. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll most likely be the, the compound. Cause then I can do the sharpshooter hunt. I can do a regular hunt. I can do whatever I want basically. Um, yeah. So, and there's always generally speaking a good number of does on those, those hunts for some of the properties. Statistically, I don't think those Metro hunts are as high of odds as people sometimes assume that they are. I think on average, it's like between 0.3 and like 0.5 deer per hunter on those Metro hunts, like across all of them. There's like some where you get like an average of one deer per hunter, but that's pretty rare for the hunts overall. And they have like I don't even know, like 20, 30 different hunts in various cities and parks and whatnot. And they're all different dates. And usually they're only like three days at like two different time periods. So you might have like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the end of September and like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and like the end of October. And that's it for that, for so that that's, hunt. That's interesting. So they set like a, a, a metro area side for only those three days and allow you to only hunt that area for those three days, basically. Yeah. It's not like it's just you draw a zone and you get to hunt it open season. It's very controlled in that aspect. The other interesting huh. thing about them is that they divide each zone or each place into multiple zones. So, you know, if they have 10 hunters on a thousand acres for easy numbers, and they might have that thousand acres divided into 10 different zones, each guy gets a zone you get to pick who gets what zone at like your very first meeting. So you, you draw the unit, you do your little orientation class where they go over all the rules and then everybody sits down and you go in order of preference and order of draw who wants to take what zone within that thing. And then prior to the first day of the hunt, you're required to go and hang your stand. So it's not like you're going in there by surprise. A lot of these deer are used to obviously people walking through like the walking trails and stuff through the park. Uh, but then you're actually busting right into the stuff you're going to hunt the very day before you get in there. So you're getting your scent all in there and whatnot, which I'm not personally a huge fan of, but they still shoot lots of deer. So it is what it is. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know that I've ever heard of a Metro hunt done that way. Most of the Metro hunts I've heard of, you basically put your name in a hat and you get drawn to hunt that unit or that area. And then, you know, obviously a lot of this is private ground. You're responsible for, you know, acquiring permission and being able to hunt in those areas. But if the area is public land, you know, it's a free for all basically. 
so you can have 30 guys stuffed in a, a three-acre pot of plot of public land in a metro unit. Yeah. And I've been in other metro hunts where they've done it differently, where it's more like that, where you might have like a city. And in order to hunt in that city, you might need to take a proficiency test and pay like a little fee. But then you can basically hunt in anybody's place that you got permission. And it's just like right. normal DNR hunting regulations are apart from that. So yeah, it's a little bit different. And I've been pretty fortunate in the two years that I have done it that I've shot plenty of deer. Um, some of it's just been plain luck. Some of it's been, I think, picking trees that people typically haven't hunted in the past, uh, you know, years prior, you know, be it a small tree or a tree that's kind of in a goofy location, hard to get to type of thing that most people, a lot of people that do those Metro hunts, I mean, cause you'll see everybody on those orientation days and everybody will walk in together to hang their stands. There's an awful lot of guys that are carrying steel ladder stands and stuff to be able to set up that first day. There's not a lot of people that are really doing the mobile hunting uh, setups and a lot of, yeah, not- especially with urban yeah that's what i've seen a lot is their fixed stand hunters or ladder stand hunters like you said yeah and a lot of the times you don't have to drag a deer very far and you got plenty of help when you do take a deer down so it's it's not really that strenuous of a hunt generally speaking um the one deer i shot the last time i did it i think it died like i think it was 25 or 30 yards from my truck where it actually <laughs> died so i just backed the truck up you know, to the edge of the wood lot and just basically picked the deer up and tossed it in. Uh, so that was definitely the easiest drag I've ever had in my life. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll definitely do a different unit that I've done before. That's part of the fun with those hunts is being able to see different coordinators and hunt different areas and whatnot. So I never put any kind of like goals for shooting like a giant deer or anything. I basically just treat them as, as meat hunts. If I, if I get a deer or two, to put some extra venison in the freezer that's more than than good enough for me um, so do you have any plans to hunt more areas that are new to you or do you have plans to go back to your old trusty spots or your old trusty areas i mean are you going to try to hone your your off-season you know scouting skills by going to those areas and hunting or going back to your old faithfuls yeah, so I actually did scout a lot more new stuff this year, uh, especially in the summer, just because this spring was super busy for me. I didn't have a chance to get out in a lot of the times I would have liked to scout. And it was so snowy all spring. I went out in April to do a scouting trip, and there was still like a foot of snow, and there wasn't, you couldn't really see anything that was on the ground from last fall. And it was kind of like, well, this is a bit of a waste of time. Um, I found some stuff, but it wasn't it wasn't the kind of scouting I would have liked to get done in the spring. So I ended up doing some summer scouting and, and part of what sparked that was, and you know, the toll trying to get more spots thing was a lot of the areas I had in Wisconsin, especially are, you know, fairly close drives to the Met, uh, twin cities. So you get a lot of guys from like the Hudson Metro area and you get a lot of guys from the Minneapolis St. Paul Metro area that are driving over and it's, you know, kind of the closest areas that you have. So they don't get as much hunting pressure it seems like as the stuff around Minneapolis, but this get more, they get a, a reasonable amount of hunting pressure typically. And what I try to do is kind of reach out and scout some areas that are a little bit further of a drive for me, far enough of a drive where it's like kind of pushing it. If I think it's worth it or not, even to do like an afternoon hunt, cause I might not be getting home till 11 PM or midnight. Um, but I wanted to, again, like you said, expand and kind of learn new areas and just kind of add, more and more spots so that if things happen in areas that I'm, 
you know, consider old faithful. I have backup plans and, and different places I can go to and different wins. And so the way Wisconsin works now is it's no longer deer management units. It's basically just county by county. So, you know, St. Croix County have different regulations than Pierce County, than Polk County, than all the other counties, um, in the state. And certain counties have like holiday hunts and like antlerless special hunts that last like a week throughout the season. And you have to kind of know the regulations and know what hunts are going on and what counties and when. And so last winter, when it was really cold, that big cold snap that we had, there was a holiday hunt where you could use a rifle and shoot a doe for like, I can't remember what the week was. It was like right around new year's. Um, but kind of my old trusty spot in that County where I had shot deer in the past, I drove out there and I hadn't been there, you know, in a couple of years, I get right to the spot where I wanted to, to park and walk in. And this is like kind of the, the best spot that I've considered in that area where if I'm going to just pick one spot, like this is the place to be the whole swath of timber leading up to the, the, uh, swamp that I was planning on hunting on the edge of just completely logged out. There was no trees. All you could see was swamp. Uh, and so there are some tracks leading from the swamp and going into the, some of those cornfields. And like I said, it was like 10 below. So I just kind of held out hope that some deer would still be moving. Um, then I hunted there two afternoons and I was like, this is, it's not, it's not happening. So I didn't really have <laughs> any, any contingencies in that County. So I just kind of drove around and found some VPA on Onyx and I hunted some of that, but I had no experience with it other than just aerial scouting quick on a map. And it's like, you walk back there a mile in 10 degree below zero weather and you get back there and there's like one set of tracks and it's like, well, I don't really have enough time to like find another area. So you, you sit it out anyway. So that was one of the reasons I, I tried to really find, especially in some newer counties, some more areas for that type of scenario. And I did find some really good stuff this summer. Um, so I usually don't like to scout in like June or July because it's miserably hot and there's deer flies and there's mosquitoes and the swamps are all wet. So you're, you're sinking <laughs> up in mud. It, it's not generally a very fun type of time of year to scout, but it's like, if you need the Intel, you got to get the Intel. So I found a couple good swamps and I think that some of the spots are fairly overlooked, especially being so much further from the, the metro area. But I was also surprised that there are some areas where I assumed that they would be relatively untouched by human pressure, you know, just like some remote island uh, out in the middle of a swamp or, you know, some good like dogwood tucked up next to like a river surrounded by like tag alders and stuff. And it's like I go into some of those areas, bust my way back there like a mile and a half and you get to the island and there's already like two or three tree stands there. And it's like, well, dang, you know, it's like, obviously, you know, the, uh, what, whether or not they're like beast hunting hunter followers that, you know, have kind of put their stands back there. And I find this a lot. They're not a lot of the places I hunt. You're not supposed to leave stands up, but a lot of guys do it anyway, just because I think that it's kind of the way they probably always hunted. And then also, I don't think they really, that law gets enforced much. So I find typically a lot of tree stands further back, but that's one of the reasons I really like to do that confirmation scouting on foot, because now I know that there's other stands back there. Now I know where other guys like to hunt and I scout some of these other spots where there's no tree stands and they were kind of those remote areas. Now I know where to focus my time. So 
I've kind of added overall to my list over the summer. So now I probably, I mean, several thousand more acres of land that I am not intimately familiar with, but I have spots picked out that I can go to and feel fairly confident. And especially as it gets later on in the year, closer to the route, closer to firearms, closer to that late season where I think a lot of guys kind of quit hunting anyway. And you get some of these remote areas that are near private agriculture and there's not that many trees around. Maybe you got like a, you know, like a, a dogwood swamp or something that tucks up next to like a, a private cornfield or something where come December and it gets real cold, those deer are going to be coming out. And there's not really going to be anybody hunting them because there's no places for guys to set up tree stands. So I actually also bought a, um, one of those millennium ultralight tripods to stick up in the yeah, marsh. I seen, a, I seen a, a photo, I guess you posted it compared to the, uh, the ladder stand, if you'll call it, um, that you built last year. Yeah. So the ladder, the ladder's a lot lighter, a lot easier to carry, but it, um, it's not quite as stable. Like if you use some common sense, like you, you could pretty much stay on the ladder without too many, too much of an issue. Um, but if you get really soft ground and it's like, if it's more boggy, I guess, where the ground isn't necessarily stable, then it's pretty hard to stay upright in the ladder you can get the ladder feet to, to sometimes sink into mud and it makes it more stable, but it's not necessarily the case in, in all places. If you got like hard ground, that's uneven, then it becomes like a four legged table on crooked ground. It's like, it doesn't quite ever want to stay perfectly flat. Whereas if you get the tripod, you get a little bit better stability and a lot wider base. And then it had that millennium one had that really comfortable mesh seat that you can pretty much just lean back in and, and use a, a gun rest and, swivel 360 so so does a does a tripod legs are they adjustable to adjust for uneven ground uh one of them is so you got two legs that are fixed length and then the third leg has the adjustable length so you Interesting. would you would just set the adjustable one at the highest point or the lowest point and then either make it a longer or shorter to get everything flat i had a, a summit version of something like that. It was basically like a a frame ladder that had a seat on it, um, a long, long, long time ago. And like you said, it was the most unstable thing that you could ever think about hunting from. Yeah. I mean, I, I got some cattails in my backyard. There's not a lot of water in right now, but I just kind of stuck that ladder up and, and stuck the millennium tripod next to it and kind of bounced back and forth between the two. And there's no question that the tripod's more stable and more comfortable. I mean, it's, like not even much of a comparison in that regard. Uh, but the biggest difference between the two other than that is just the fact that that ladder is 10 times easier to carry. I mean, the, the tripod is 36 pounds, but it's also really big and bulky. So it's kind of awkward to carry. So I figured the easiest way to actually carry that tripod around is to throw it on like a deer cart and strap it down and just use the wheels wherever you have access to like either open hardwoods or like a access trail logging road type of thing that's kind of the way to go for that type of cover and then once you get to the marsh it's like you just gotta i tried doing so many different things i tried kind of i tried making like a like a yoke you know like guys will carry canoes to hold it directly over my head that didn't work out too great i tried just using like a a really padded like duffel bag strap that didn't work too well either because it was so bulky and then eventually i just kind of came to the um the conclusion that you just got to man up and throw it over your shoulder and just kind of hold it on there for however long that swamp is. 
Because it's not like you can just like wheel it through a marsh going through like head high cattails or something. You got to keep it, you know, kind of up in the air so it's not getting caught every five feet. Yeah, or if you ran a sled, I mean, you're going to give away where you're hunting because you're going to flatten everything between point A and point B, basically. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like pretty much you just got to you gotta wheel it to wherever you can and then take it off the wheeled cart, lock the cart to a tree so it doesn't get stolen, hopefully, and and just trek it in the rest of the way. Once the marshes freeze up, I think later in the season, like usually around firearm season in Wisconsin, depending on the year, the swamps will be frozen enough where you can walk on it without busting through. And that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. You get a nice stable base to set everything on and there might even be some snow on the ground. So that's kind of like the idea. Like if you can get a, like a, a fire or like a rifle season in Wisconsin where the swamp is frozen and there's a little bit of snow on the ground and you can get out into an area where there's a lot of secure cover and not many trees. I've seen some of my best, you know, public land, you know, in terms of deer sightings, number of deer sightings, like those are some of the best hunts that I've had is when you can get back into some of those treeless areas or like a tamarack swamp or something where not a lot of guys are hanging tree stands. Cause then once that marsh is frozen, guys will get out there and they'll start pushing through that stuff. Cause if there's water there, a lot of the guys will, will tend to stay on the dry land. But if it's frozen, they'll tend to venture out into the swamp a little bit and they'll start kicking deer around and they'll get pushed back into some of those um, more remote, hard to get to spots. So I think having a tripod like that, just to get my head a little bit above like marsh grass or cattail area, tuck it into like some dogwood or some willows or something to have a little bit of back cover. Pretty, I'm kind of looking forward to that, that type of hunt this year. So I'm hoping that, hoping I get an opportunity to really get, give that thing some use. So outside of Minnesota and Wisconsin, are there any other any other hunts you have planned? Um, you're not going to Colorado this year? Nope. We're going to Colorado next year, it sounds like. And I'm getting... We, I was going to get married in the end of September next year, but now we push that up to June. So then we're going to take our honeymoon in Alaska in the end of June, and then we are going to... Um, I'll basically have September to go out to Colorado, mule deer hunting and elk hunting. Uh, smart move. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And we'll just go back to the same spot when we do that. I think, I think I'd much rather hunt an over the counter unit where I'm familiar with the area, even if it's not like a superb unit necessarily by like elk standards, rather than try and pick a new area and just relearn something all over again. Yeah, it's a tough part, especially, you know, with water. Um, you know, water can be difficult to find depending on what unit or what area you're in. And that's mm-hmm. a big gamble is going to somewhere new and, you know, not having enough water and having to pack a long ways to get water. Yeah. And I mean, somebody asked me on YouTube today, is like, does all the, the work that you do mapping and, and scouting online for whitetails in the Midwest that help you when you went out west? it's like learning how to, you know, use the map and the topos and knowing what the map is telling you. Yeah, that's, it gives you a huge advantage, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how the animals out there are going to use that terrain. And that was something that it's like, you can read articles, read books, listen to podcasts about how the animals use the terrain. But it was like for us, once we got out there, 
that was when we started seeing the sign. That was when we started making the observations and really started figuring it out. So it was like year after year, you build more and more upon that, that base of Intel. And it's like, now I can tell you, you know, over all those, those drainages that we were hunting, I can tell you where some of the pinch points are, where the animals would like to cross over, you know, from one ridge to the other. I can tell you where we remember seeing deer bedded, you know, so it's just that much less of a learning curve the next time we go out there. Yeah, I think topo in the west has less benefit than it does in the east to a degree. I mean, obviously, it's a sheer cliff. You know, nothing's going to use that either place. But even in the west, you know, a lot of these steepness of these hills doesn't seem to affect them or, you know, have to use, um, you know, saddles or stuff like that to cross over compared to, you know, in the east. You know, you can look at a lot of terrain features based off an aerial photo and really key in. You know, whereas kind of in the West, you know, aerial photos are a really good place to start because you can find, you know, the open meadows, especially for elk. You can find maybe water holes from that aerial photo. And then you can even look at the topo maps to see maybe where there might be a, a spring or maybe a creek. Yeah, it seemed like for the place that we were at, the, the topo was like the first thing that we looked at, but we would always we would never look at the topo without also having access to the aerial to see how they kind of intertwined, you know, cause it was like, if you had, you know, it was like generally the Northeast facing slopes, you know, had the dark timber, but then eventually you would get like some ravines within those, uh, slopes that would have, you know, like Aspens on the South facing slopes and then your dark timber on the North facing slopes. And you get further and further down and more of that dark timber starts to transition to kind of more of the meadows and the, um, the aspens and whatnot. And then even some of the higher up spots, they would have dark timber intermixed with little openings of meadow. So it was like, yeah, the, uh, the topo maps were helpful, but it was like to get the full picture, you had to use both. Yeah. Yeah. To, I mean, to a degree, that's what you use in the East as much as anything is, you know, you can look at a, a topo and get better ideas where to go. And then obviously you overlay it with the, the aerial and then that really keys in to where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I, a lot of times I like to do is like, um, I like the, the hybrid view that you get on like Onyx, but yeah. sometimes the aerial photos aren't the greatest in, in certain terrains. So what I do a lot of times is I'll have my Onyx pulled up on one side of the screen. And I'll have like Google earth pulled up on the other side of the screen and then I'll look at a place on Google Earth and just kind of cross-reference to see where the, the boundaries are and where the topo lines are. And then it's like if a spot looks like it could be good, I'll zoom in on Google Earth and look through the various years' worth of aerial photos and just kind of like cross, you know, reference like where the deer trails are and stuff. And it's like, if yeah, if it looks really good on Google Earth, then regardless of what it looks like on Onyx, I'll just drop a waypoint on Onyx right in that spot because then I'll between the two of them, I have a better combined look at what it actually is. Yeah. Sometimes Onyx, the maps that are on there can be relatively old compared to Google earth. Um, you know, obviously like what you were talking about with the, uh, the clear cut of timber, you know, sometimes that may not show up on Onyx, but may show up on Google earth. And even for that matter, sometimes you can look at the difference between like Google earth and, um, bing's bird eye or whatever they call it and you can notice some major differences because some of them are taking different times of year and things like that so it's a really good really good thing to check out especially if you're digital scouting from home is 
don't just use Google Earth or don't just use Onyx. Use them all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, CalTopo is another good resource. Yep. And like uh, HuntStan and Scout Luck Weather, they all. I, it seemed like on their their mobile apps they have different sources too than even on like on their website. I think they both have it look like Google based imagery on their apps, but then if you go on the website, you can choose different selections once you get zoomed closer in and get a little bit different view that I don't even think Google had. So like you said, as many different options as you can get, you never know what map might all of a sudden show something that really pops. Or like you say, maybe you got uh, a hunter trail that becomes really apparent one year, like maybe four or five years ago, you get like a, an opening or like a CRP field or a, a swamp that there's just deer trails in. And then all of a sudden one year onward, there's a big, almost straight line trail. That's a little bit wider than all the other ones. Well, that's like, okay, well that one's obviously a hunter that started to go to this access, this spot. That's probably where he hunts quite a bit or looking at, uh, places that are logged fairly often. Even if you can tell that whatever's growing there is fairly tall, you can back, Go back in the images on Google to the point where all of a sudden it doesn't look cut anymore. And then you can say, okay, well, back in 2004, that looks like the year that was logged. And you can kind of get an idea of how tall and how thick that regrowth actually is without stepping foot in there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of benefits to digital scouting now. You know, like, like you said, you can tell a lot, you know, how old's a cut. Fires are a good example. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a lot of people like to elk hunt around fires or in old fires. Um, so that's a really good resource. And I know like Onyx now has the fire layer yep. where you can bring up. It shows you the old burns and um, how long ago they burned and things like that. So, Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned the Bing bird's eye maps. Those things, unfortunately for me, they, uh, they're gone in most of the areas that I hunt. They're still current and like the metropolitan areas, like I can zoom in on downtown Minneapolis and they'll have updated bird's eye imagery, but it seemed like all the stuff that they can't keep up to date instead of just leaving those old maps, they just remove it. Huh? So you'll just have the standard base, you know, Bing imagery for a lot of places, which it's kind of unfortunate. So a lot of the areas that didn't have those Bing bird's eye saved, I lost a lot of that. But now, I mean, Google gives you a pretty good, a pretty good look at a lot of the spots. If you look at all the, the various years, um, it's just not quite as good. I wonder at some point if, um, I know there's a, there's a few guys that are using like drones in the off season to give them some aerial maps. Um, so I, I wonder if at some point that'll become big enough with the price of drones as low as they are guys going out in you know, February and March and whatnot, and just flying around the area just to get a, a better idea of, you know, what kind of trees are growing, where, how tall the stuff is and. And that kind of thing. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to be able to see that. Like if you had a drone to be able to program a flight path over a particular area of public or private ground that you wanted to survey to get higher resolution mapping of that particular area. Obviously it's not going to be thousands of acres, but you know, if you have a, you know, a small area of private ground that you want a higher resolution image of, you know, have a drone fly that area and basically stitch all those images together. I know there's some of this being used in the wildlife field now for waterfowl surveys, for duck surveys and things like that, as they will basically take a drone and have it fly a a survey route or do a grid pattern. And then it stitches all these images together and they're able to do actual 
counts of waterfowl in certain areas, especially on like wildlife management areas and national wildlife refuges. They'll physically go in and, and circle ducks and count them, each individual duck or groups of ducks. So it, it's out there and being used. Now, whether it's going to make the transition to high resolution, you know, kind of aerial photo, photographs for a hunting area or not will be interesting to see. Yeah, and I think one of the things to look for is is just to see how various, you know, public and, you know, national and state lands kind of regulate the use of drones. Because uh, obviously on private land, guys can fly over whatever they want, you know, on their land. But you might have, you know, a situation where like a national wildlife refuge says, you know, we don't want guys out there disturbing the, the waterfowl. We'll do it for our surveys, but we don't want anybody else going out there and doing it. So they might just outlaw it year round. And then I think a lot of states probably already outlawed draws outlawed or outlaw <laughs> outlaw drones for actual hunting during the season. Um, but most of them don't have laws against scouting in the off season and taking aerial surveys. Yeah. I think I read something last year, somebody in one of these Western States and I, I don't, I'm not even going to say it cause I don't know which one exactly it was, but they got a ticket for using a drone and the ticket was wrote for using a drone to aid in the taking of wildlife, but all they were doing was filming B-roll footage for their YouTube channel or whatever with the drone, um, and they got a, wrote a ticket for using it to aid in harvesting of wildlife or something like that. I'm not even sure exactly what it was, but I know they got wrote a ticket, and it was a big, big deal, and it brings up an interesting point as to, you know, can you use it for B-roll film, but not use it for aiding in the harvest of deer? So like you said, it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah. I mean, it's a fine line cause you can't, I mean, without actually going through the footage to see what they were looking at, it's like, how can you prove that they were or were not actually doing some scouting as they were filming? So it's kind of from the wildlife agency's perspective, it's kind of like you're guilty until proven innocent. If you're doing it within the, the dates of the season, I would imagine. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you have, I still like doing that on, that on foot, though, the stuff, though, because it's like even with, like, finding the stands, it's like some stuff that looks so good from up in the air, you actually get there to confirm, and it, it just is a letdown sometimes. And sometimes it's the opposite, so. Yeah, that's that's why I always just like, I mean, digital scouting just gets me to an area and then obviously boots on the ground dictates whether that's going to be a huntable area or when it's going to be huntable based on what's there. Cause you know, you can do all the digital scouting you want, but you're not going to know whether that Oak tree is producing acorns or whether that, you know, small persimmon stand next to the pond actually has persimmons on it. You know, so that's where boots on the ground really, really seals the deal compared to digital scouting. Right. And like I said, you can't see tree stands on digital scouting. So, yeah, it looks good. And you get in there, there's a tree stand in every tree. It doesn't look so good now. Or scent wicks everywhere. There's there's some marshes in the Twin Cities where it's like I'll circle like, you know, 20 islands I want to go check out in the cattails in like February when everything's frozen. And I go walk out there and like nine out of the 20 islands have tree stands back there or scent wicks or some type of human activity. And it's like, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. It sucks that, you know, you find all that. But at the same time, it's like, I'm glad I found it on a day that I wasn't actually going out to hopefully do a hunt. 
bust my butt to get back there and then find that somebody's already in there or find that somebody else has been hunting there like during the week or something. It's like your odds are pretty low regardless. Yeah, our trail tacks scattered all out through there. Yep. I can remember doing deer surveys when I was in college with a spotlight on a National Wildlife Refuge and it was like, you'd be like, oh, deer, nope, just trail tacks. Oh, nope. And literally every 20 feet you were seeing trail tacks. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that I've been trying to really hone in on this summer with both the on-foot stuff and with the aerial stuff is really trying to find the stuff that is not just remote, but it's hard to access right. Like, for example, there's a, a particular parking lot that has like a, a big access trail coming out of it. And it can take you into some pretty deep remote spots to where like you can go back like a mile and a half on that road and then kick off another mile perpendicular to the road to get to some really good looking marsh stuff. But it's like even some of those areas, they have hunter sign. It's like guys are just taking a bike or whatever and getting back there. Cause they're all, you know, it's like if guys know what to look for in an aerial photo, like some of these spots, multiple guys are finding and, and going and checking out. But it's like, there's other spots, even like closer to the parking lot, maybe off the beaten trail a little bit where it's like, you just look at it and you're like, I don't know how I could get back there. Maybe there's no trees for certain areas and maybe there's like a Creek running through, but the Creek is, you know, too shallow in spots to be able to take a kayak down or there's no kayak launch without dragging it through a hundred yards of muck to get back there. And it's just like, man, I, I don't know how I could really hunt that effectively. Maybe it's a wind thing. And I think those are a lot of the areas where, you know, those deer are getting pushed to or, or learning over the years that they're going to be safe. It's like, if I can figure out ways to hunt those things effectively, that's kind of what I've been trying to to pinpoint is, is spots like that. Yeah. I think there's been a big trend in the hunting industry or the hunters in the past, you know, probably 10 years or so for that, that style of hunting is trying to find these thick, nasty, hard to get to areas, you know, the growth of, you know, hunting from kayaks. Yeah, people did it back a long time ago, but it's really gotten big here in the past five years probably of people hunting from kayaks. I um, you know, just being able to access these hard to use or hard to reach areas um, for deer hunting. Um, it seems like that's really grown a lot in the past few years. Yeah. Speaking of kayak, one of the spots I went and scouted this summer, uh, it took me two and a half miles on foot to get back there. And I knew that I could use probably a kayak to get back there during the season, but I just tacked it onto my on foot scouting trip. Just, I didn't have to make a separate trip with a kayak. And by the time I got back there, uh, to the spot, which was just, it just looked great on the aerial photo, just nice, long, narrow ridge that dipped down into like a, a, like a tamarack swamp right along the edge of like a willow swamp and right on the outside bend of this Creek. It just looked gorgeous on the aerial photo. And I get back there and there was a tree stand and a, a mineral a mineral lock mineral block and then i walked down to the creek and the guy had two boats one was just like a like a little flat bottom john boat and the other one was like a 14 foot aluminum with an 18 horsepower motor i don't know how, <laughs> how often he was going back there but it was like okay obviously i can cross this spot off my list yeah holy cow <laughs> and the thing is it's like some of these, you know, guys will talk about whether or not to report stuff that they find where, you know, guys are leaving stuff illegally. It's like, I can almost guarantee you, even if I did tell, 
you know, a conservation officer or whatnot, that there was stuff back there. Like odds are, he's not going to take, he's, he's got more important things to do probably, you know, with fishing violations and, and regulating that kind of stuff and going out in the summer and July heat to take out somebody's stand. That's two and a half yeah, miles they, in a swamp. Yeah. Then they got to pack it out and even like the boats, then they got to do something with the boats. I guess they could take a VIN number if they had it and call the person and be like, Hey, come get your boat. But odds are it's right. probably not registered for the most part. So, you know, then it's more of a headache for them that they got to deal with. So yeah, that's probably very, very low on their priority list. Yeah. So it's like more than anything when I find that kind of stuff, it's just like, I know where to avoid. Yeah. You asked about so late have, season. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, late season? So like maybe after, December hunts planned. I know you can hunt back into February, but like anything late season, anything like that planned? Um, so Minnesota's cutoff is December 31st and Wisconsin, it's depending on where you're at. It's either like the first week of January or if you're like the Metro unit, it goes through the end of January. Um, so I did a lot of aerial scouting on some of that Metro stuff, but a lot of it's really small acreage stuff surrounded by like neighborhoods and stuff. So I've been more working on just trying to get it done before I have to resort to those locations and just focusing in on some of those harder to access, you know, swamp places that are maybe a little bit further away from the main cities. Um, like I was telling you earlier, I found a couple of good spots on some of the new stuff that I scouted. I think it'll be, I think there'll be really good spots in late season if I get some hunts in that time of year. And I wish I knew about them last year because I, would have felt very confident uh, in that, that holiday hunt, hunting some of those areas with a rifle for sure. But even, you know, when I did some turkey hunting last year in December, some of the old faithful stuff that I hadn't hunted because, you know, there was, you know, either I was just keen on learning new stuff or I'd see people every now and then and it seemed like it was a little bit overhunted to me. I went back to some of that stuff for turkeys and I was like, holy cow, I was surprised by the amount of deer sign and tracks and stuff that I saw. So I think a lot of it is just, I need to, when it comes to be that time of year, just kind of spot check various spots and, and see what deer activity is where, what the numbers look like. I mean, obviously with that time of year, there's almost always going to be some amount of snow. So I can be able to tell by the tracks, whether or not I might be able to get on some does, or if I, you know, caught a really giant track and maybe I want to try and get a chance at a, a big buck when it's nobody's hunting him because it's too late in the year and he might be hitting food sources more regularly. He might become more predictable. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of spots to the point where I have more spots than I can realistically hunt, especially in December when it gets dark at like 4 PM. <laughs> um, so we'll just, we'll see how it goes, but that's, that's kind of the plan is just kind of maybe go out there early in the day and just spot check some stuff. And then got enough time, just pick whatever looks the best and, and do some sets. Yeah, I think if I was in your case, I would have the drive to get it done early just so I don't have to sit out in negative 10 degree temperatures. Yeah, it's, it's, thankfully it's very rare that it, it gets that cold. Um, but even on like a, an average December day, I mean, it's still like teens. Yeah. So. See, I, I would get it done early just so I don't have to go through that. I don't, I don't do well with really cold weather for the most part, especially if I have to sit still. Yep. Late, this late September through like, end of October is like my preferred time of year to shoot a deer because it's the most comfortable weather wise. 
I'm wearing a reasonable amount of clothes. It's usually cool enough at night that I'm not like super concerned about mosquitoes and like getting the, uh, the deer out before it spoils. That's always a pretty nice time of year. Yeah. I think last year we talked about trying to do a, a coos deer hunt. Some of the guys I work with in Arizona in January, um, I think that's back on the table again this year is to try to maybe go down there in January and see um, a couple of the guys used to work down in that area. So they're pretty familiar with it. So we may try to do that again this year. If we can, if it all, the plans will hold together. Yeah, that'd be fun. And I, I've heard that down there, they also have whitetails and, and mule deer too. So it's like, if you didn't want to go after coos deer specifically, if you probably travel a little bit within the state, you probably got some other opportunities yeah, it'd be interesting. I think it'd be fun to try to try to hunt a coos deer, especially with a bow. Um, you know, supposedly extremely, extremely hard. Um, so that'll be fun. Hopefully we can get it all pulled together this year. Yeah, it's probably not too far for you either, is it? No, it's not too bad. It's, I don't know, maybe depends on what part of the state we go to, but it's probably going to be, it's like eight hours to Arizona from where I'm at, so... It'll probably be 12 to 15 would be my guess. I forgot to ask you, are you using any trail cameras anywhere, whether it's at your, your parents' place to take inventory before you go back or even up on the mountains, any places? No, my buddy's got a couple up here on the mountains just because I'm not picky. Um, I don't necessarily need to run trail cameras. We haven't real, run trail cameras at my parents' place for years um, so I've got like four trail cameras just sitting here. Um, he's run a couple, but outside of that, no, I haven't run, haven't run any in a couple of years. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm, I'm putting out, um, a good handful in some of those new spots that I scouted over the summer and I don't plan on really going out and picking them until after the season, just because they are new spots. And it's like, maybe if I go back to hunt one of those locations in the fall, I might check them. Um, if it's like during a hunt, but otherwise I won't take a special trip back there just for the sole purpose of, of collecting images. So let's wait till after the season's over just so that I can, again, just try and learn. Cause I, I don't expect, you know, necessarily to have a full understanding or knowledge just from one year of hunting a new place. Like some of the areas I've hunted for several years, I have a little bit better idea of how the deer and, and the hunters move through it, but that's kind of the plan for how I'm using my trail cameras right now. Though if I, if I do at some point purchase some more like cellular cams, I'd probably put those in, you know, more of the areas that, uh, I'd plan on hunting more regularly, more of the spots. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how trail cameras have evolved. And I know Nevada just put a, a, some type of trail camera ban in place, um, about when and when you cannot use trail cameras. Um, and I don't ever see that taking hold in the east as much as it has in the west because I think there's another state, maybe Colorado or somewhere has Wyoming maybe has another some type of trail camera ban of some sort. Um, but apparently it was pretty bad, like to the points where you'd find water holes and there would be you know thirty cameras over water holes. <laughs> so I could only only imagine how bad it is. It's like at that point. What do you expect? You're going to go out there to hunt over your water hole and there's going to be eight other guys in tree stands? 
whoever can shoot the farthest wins first. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know the cell cam thing, I've used those quite extensively for work. And I see them being, they could be a huge downfall for hunting because like in areas where you have bear baits, you could easily set up three or four trail cameras um, at different bait sites. And say you were rifle hunting, you could basically hunt from one ridge and cover these three or four bait sites. So if you get a, a photo of a bear on bait site three, you know, you walk 80, 100 yards and now you can see bear site three at, you know, 400 yards away. And be able to shoot that bear from there. So that's kind of the downfall I see the cellular cameras compared to traditional trail cameras. Yeah, I could see that for sure in that kind of application. I know for me, like a lot of stuff I hunt in Minnesota, I can't even use trail cameras because of the WMA laws, you know, not allowing right. you to leave stuff out overnight. But all my stuff's pretty much in Wisconsin for the most part. So it's like I can't just like get a picture and all of a sudden just like take off work and drive an hour and a half and all of a sudden expect to to have some kind of positive outcome from making a quick decision like that but um being able to tell things like like if you put it up on like a a good scrape and some remote bedding and all of a sudden you get you know like pictures for inventory purposes or all of a sudden you know that like some something big is like moving through that hasn't been moving through like all through September or something, you know, just like kind of informational things that are not going to necessarily seal the deal for me, but give me some piece of the puzzle or some kind of information that I can act on. Yeah. You get start getting some daylight pictures of a certain buck visiting a, a scrape line, basically, you know, obviously that's going to incentivize you to get up and go hunt that area, knowing that he's moving in daylight in that area now. Yeah. I think I remember on one of like the old, um, Oh, what DVD? It was like one of the Lone Wolf DVDs. I can't remember what their show was called. But uh, I remember like Andre, like some of the, Andre DeQuisto, some of the bucks that he shot, he he runs cameras a lot on like his farms. And it was like he wouldn't, he'd only be after certain specific deer. And he would use trail cameras to monitor if, if they were out there. And if there wasn't anything worth chasing, he just wouldn't hunt or go after anything. But then it was like as soon as he got trail camera confirmation that something was there, then he would be able to move in and, and go in for the kill with all the scouting he's done. He basically knew how to set up once that deer was there. Yeah, it's, it's a fine line. And, you know, I, I think for the most part, most people tow on the line or on the right side of the line, but then there's always those one people that are on the wrong side of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it's, it's and tough. It's tough because you don't want to necessarily write laws you know, that are focused on how people are going to abuse the law. You'd like to be able to write them the other way, but yeah, I mean, write them for the 99 percenters versus the one percenters. Yeah. If you're writing laws for the, the one percenters, then you start really making some goofy laws. Right. You know, I, don't, I it's an interesting topic as to whether you agree with trail camera bans or not, you know, especially like what, what Nevada did, um, you know, compared to like cellular cameras you know, it's like, it's an interesting topic. I'll tell you one thing, though. They are pretty addicting. <laughs> I, I, what are you talking about? You said you weren't going to check yours all season. No, Very few hunters out there would put a camera out and be like, yeah, I'll just check it at the end of season. No, I mean, like the uh, the cellular ones. I had uh, 
one of my friends let me try one once for a year and getting the text message, that little buzz is like a distinct buzz that none of your other apps made. It was like, you got that buzz and you knew what it was. You just like check your phone to see what was on there. You could be like at work or whatever. And you get that, that picture coming in. It was like enjoyable. Just, you know, getting that little notification. See there, there's, there's a distinct difference. There is my experience with those was used to operate feral pig traps. So my phone would go off 40 to 90 times a night and I'd have to wake up and look at my phone to see if pigs were in the trap or if it was raccoons or deer or what those things, those cellular cameras are the devil and I hate (laughs) them for that reason. I did not sleep for like two years because of that and I hate them. So I'm kind of biased to them. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) The main thing that I have against them is just so dang expensive. Yeah, I think that technology in the next two years is just going to be, it'll almost make traditional trail cameras obsolete. Yeah, I'm almost thinking about just instead of investing in them now, just wait a couple more years. The price will come down. The technology will get pushed down to the lower price cameras. It's like now you look at the reviews on even like the $300 ones and a lot of them are very hit or miss. And it's like you get you know, the $400 plus ones, they tend to have pretty good reviews across the board, but it's like, man, 400 bucks for a camera. And then if you want to get, you know, four or five of them, that's a huge investment. Yeah. I think in probably five years, you'll probably see traditional trail cameras be phased out almost. I think most everything will be cellular related. Um, obviously you could use them like a traditional trail camera where you don't have cell phone service, but I think they will, most all of them will have the capability to send pictures cellularly. Right. Yeah. It wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me either. And the ones that are standard technology, I'll just probably get more and more inexpensive. All right. That does it for the content for this episode. So now we've come to the time when hopefully you guys have been waiting for the information on how you can win an arrow hunter saddle. So, there's going to be a couple ways you can enter. The first way you can enter is on Facebook. So when this podcast launches, there will be a post pinned to the top of the Arrow Hunter Facebook page. Now, in order to win on Facebook or get entered to win, you need to like the Arrow Hunter page and you need to like the DIY Sportsman Facebook page. And then you need to comment on that post on the Arrow Hunter page. And this comment can be something along the lines of DIY sent me, something like that. Like I said, it's, it's going to be pinned at the top of the page, so it should be really easy to find. You just need to like the pages, leave a comment on that photo, and then you also need to share it. So just to repeat that again, like the IOI Sportsman, like Arrow Hunter, comment on the picture, and share, and you'll be entered to win. And then we are also doing this giveaway on Instagram, so if you want to do it on both Facebook and Instagram, that'll just give you one additional entry. Uh, But on Instagram, the instructions will be, you need to follow uh, our page, which is at DIY underscore sportsman. You need to follow at new tribe tree gear. And then you just need to repost the picture that we're basically going to be posting on Instagram. So once again, on Instagram, you need to follow our page and new tribes uh, page and repost the giveaway photo. You guys will have until the 19th of August in order to enter this giveaway. So uh, this podcast is being posted on the 9th, so you have until the 19th to enter. And then we will announce the winner on our podcast, which will air on August 23rd. If you guys have any additional questions on how to enter that, just shoot us a message on you know the Facebook or the Instagram page, and we'll be sure to clear it up. 
with that being said, I want to thank you guys for listening in once again. Be sure to like and follow the Sportsman's Nation podcast feeds, uh, whether the Whitetail feed is your only feed or if you'd like to also listen to the Western Hunting uh, Sportsman's Nation podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Honest reviews are always appreciated. And then, of course, a special thanks to Arrow Hunter once again for helping to make this podcast possible and also providing us with one of their saddles to be able to give away to one of you guys.